How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening, to reflect upon your uh, attributes, your essence, your character, and how you have uh, worked in human history to constantly uh, demonstrate your grace, your kindness to man, and to provide a way of salvation and deliverance. Father, we pray that as we study your word this evening, we'd be challenged by the things we study and come to a greater appreciation of what we find here. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, what we just passed out is not really something I'm going to take any time to go over in any detail. It's just a comparison of flood stories from the biblical flood story in the first column, the Greek flood story in the second column, the Akkadian study, or the Akkadian uh, story in the third column, the Babylonian in the fourth. That's a really a misprint under Gilgamesh. That should be the Babylonian story and the Sumerian story. And there are different categories compared throughout in terms of the date of the account, uh, who initiated the flood, who interceded for mankind, uh, the reason for the flood, the hero in the flood story, uh, etc., Now, to go along with that, I ran across an interesting article on the Institute for Creation Research website today, a just a short little article written by John Morris on why does nearly every culture have a tradition of a global flood. And in this article, he notes that he has, over the years, collected more than 200 flood stories. These are legends or myths in various cultures from all over the uh, all over the world, and these have been reported by various missionaries, anthropologists, and others who have gotten gotten into these various cultures, from Stone Age cult, Stone Age cultures to more advanced cultures. And after comparing all of these various flood stories, he notes the following similarities: that in 88 percent of these flood stories, there's a favored family that delivers the human race. In 66% of the, the stories, this family is forewarned by the God or the gods of this coming judgment. In 66% of the flood stories, the flood or worldwide judgment is due to the wickedness of mankind. In 95% of the stories, the only catastrophe is a flood. And I guess in a a few of them, there's a flood plus some other kind of catastrophe as well. But it's uh, at least a flood in 95% of them, or only a flood in 95% of them. The flood is global 
in 95% of them, you know, considering the debate amongst evangelicals about whether the flood was universal or local, that's interesting that in 95% of the uh, various flood stories, it's a global flood. In 70% of them, survival is due to a boat. Makes you sort of wonder if it's a flood, how the others had survival. I guess they climbed to a, well, if the flood's global, I'm not sure how they, how they were delivered in the other ones. In 67% of them, he notes that uh, animals were also saved. In 73%, animals played some role. In 57% of the, the flood story, survivors landed on a mountain. In 35% of the flood stories, birds were sent out at some point. In 7%, a rainbow is mentioned. In 13%, survivors offered a sacrifice at the end. And in 9% of the flood stories, specifically, eight people were saved. So he notes, putting all of that together, the story would read something like this. Once there was a worldwide flood sent by God to judge the wickedness of man. But there was one righteous family which was forewarned of the coming flood. They built a boat on which they survived the flood along with the animals. And as the flood ended, their boat landed on a high mountain from which they descended and repopulated the whole earth. Sounds pretty similar to the biblical uh, story, except the biblical story gives much more detail and is much more realistic than in many of these other stories. For example, in the... I believe it's the Babylonian uh, flood story. The, sh- the description of the ship is that of a cube, which isn't very ship-shape. Wouldn't handle the uh, all of the the high waves and winds that would be generated in a worldwide cataclysm. So the biblical story and the biblical details have the ring of truth and validity to them. All right, this evening we are coming to the end of the flood story itself, and I would like for you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 8, and we'll have a brief review before we get into the Noahic covenant at the end of the chapter and into chapter 9. Remember, when we look at our study here of Genesis, we have three main events that have taken place. This is the third of our main events. We have the creation, then we have the fall of man, and then we have the flood. Each of these gives us information about God, and each of these introduces critical doctrine in terms of our understanding of man's relationship to God. In the creation, we are introduced, first of all, to the creator creature distinction, that God is sovereign. We, it informs of, uh, us of God's omnipotence, God's power, God's sovereignty, that he is distinct from everything in creation. Second thing that it emphasizes is the purpose of creation, of the creation of man, that man is the representative of God. He's created in the image and likeness of God. The fall speaks of God's character in terms of his righteousness. He set a standard. Man violates that standard. So God's justice swings in, and there is condemnation. But there is also 
the operation of God's grace in terms of the promise of a future deliverer. Then the flood again emphasizes the grace of God because Noah finds grace in the eyes of the Lord, but it also speaks of the fact that there is a judgment and there is also salvation. And this salvation is defined by God. God is the one who determines the basis for salvation and how we're saved. In his grace, he provides a way of salvation, but it's not just any way. It's not up to man to determine what the basis for salvation is or how to be saved. God is the one who determines that. We saw that in the flood event, the cause is described in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, and the basis is the demonic infiltration and genetic attack on the human race in order to destroy the purity of the human race and God's ability to fulfill his promise that he would send a deliverer who would be the seed of the woman. That's that bizarre episode where we read in Genesis 6-2 that the sons of God, which is a technical term for the fallen angels, the demons, the Beneha Elohim, everywhere in the Old Testament that phrase is used, it speaks of angels. Where well, you get into the New Testament, if you're a son of God, that has to do with the doctrine of adoption and refers to the fact that you're a believer. But in the Old Testament, the term sons of God is a technical term for the angels, and it is used that way in Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2. And so it is a contrast between these uh, demons, the fallen angels, who look upon uh, human women and enter and marry them, and this interbreeding of angelic and human uh, human sources causes a... Uh, destruction or violation of the gene pool. This would prevent the Messiah from coming as a, a pure human. So we read in Genesis 6-4 that the Nephilim were then on the earth in those days. And the term Nephilim refers to the monstrous product of that union. And I pointed out there's an older attempt, and this attempt was made for a long time, to call the Nephilim, here's the English word, Nephilim, The plural, the I am is, reflects the Hebrew plural, and it comes from the Hebrew root, nafal. N-A-P-H-A-L, which has the meaning in the verb to fall. And so it is described as fallen ones, and there was an etymology, there was attempt etymologically to relate it to this root, and then to relate this to fallen angels. That doesn't work. It's not that they're not uh, the product of the sons of God. The sons of God are fallen angels, but you can't hang it on the etymology of this Hebrew word. That's the point I'm making. Because when you look in the Scriptures at the use of the term Nephilim, it is used again in what's considered to be a, a problem passage in uh, Numbers, you see, I've lost the reference, but it's used in, in the old King James, it called them giants. Uh, it's used in numbers to refer to the, I think it's in numbers 13, 1333? Yeah, it's used in numbers 1333 to describe the giants 
in the land of Canaan. Now, this is an interesting problem to solve, and I'm not sure what the solution is. I don't think anybody can be dogmatic on it. See, Moses writes here in 14, approximately 1440 B.C. They spent 40, they, Exodus was in 1446. They spent 40 years in the wilderness, so let's say it's 14. He writes around 1406, just before they go into the land. Now, at that time, he uses this word Nephilim to describe the giants in the land. Or actually, let me correct that. This would be about 1445 B.C. when they first sent the spies into the land after they had spent a year at Sinai. So you have the use of this term Nephilim. Now, either Nephilim is a term that is contemporaneous to 1445, and it simply describes these large, monstrous, unusual uh, humans who are unusual uh, men living in the land. And for a point of reference, Moses uses a word that is contemporary to 1445 to describe the offspring of the fallen angels and and, uh, these beautiful women back in 2600 B.C. Because, see, he's communicating to Jews in 1445 B.C., and he may be saying, okay, what's a word that they're going to understand that I can use to describe these monstrous offspring back in 2600 B.C.? So he could be using a contemporary word that simply has sort of a generic meaning of monsters or giants, something of that type, and he uses that to describe the creature, the, this bastardized offspring back in 2600 B.C., or it could be an ancient word that was a technical word used to describe the offspring in 2600 B.C., and there, it, 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 as we pointed out many times, after the flood you have the development of these various mythologies that are just vague reflections of the truth, And so this word has sort of entered into a mythological usage by 1445 B.C. to refer to any kind of monstrous creature. And so he's taking a word that has uh, had one technical sense in 2600 B.C. and he's uh, applying it uh, in in its contemporary meaning in 1445 B.C. And anyway, Nephilim itself is not a technical term for half-angel, half-humans. It just refers to some sort of monstrous uh, creature that is part that is part human, or in the sense of the, the giants in the land in 1445 B.C., all human. The reason you have to make that distinction, if it means half, if it, the technical meaning of Nephilim is half-demon and half-human, then you've got a real problem with the kind of creatures that are inhabiting the land in Numbers 13, because... The Nephilim of of Genesis 6 are all wiped out in the flood. They don't survive. They're not on the ark. So don't make the mistake that it is a technical term for half-angel, half-demons. It has a generic sense as well. So because this is a worldwide problem that is affecting the entirety of the human race, God warns of a worldwide judgment in Genesis 6-3, but he precedes that judgment with grace. This is the emphasis. Grace precedes judgment. God does not deal with man on the basis of what they deserve. 
God deals with them on the basis of who and what he is and on the basis of his character. And that is the basis for grace, to deal with issues on the basis of who and what God is, not on the basis of who and what people necessarily deserve. Fourth point, in that grace provides a deliverer, in that, in his grace, in that 120 years of grace, God provides a deliverer who is Noah. Noah is said to have found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so God is going to provide a deliverer through Noah who is a type of Christ. Just as there is one way of salvation at this time, and that's Noah, there's one way of eternal salvation, and that is through Jesus Christ. So God sent a worldwide flood, which we have studied. It's a flood that is a unique Hebrew word is used to describe the flood. It's a mabul. And this term mabul is used only of the Noahic flood. It is not used, ever used of a local flood anywhere in the scriptures. And last time we looked at Genesis, uh, the descriptions in Genesis 7 and Genesis 8 related to chronology and saw that the total length of time for Noah and his family on the ark was just over one year. So this, again, reinforces the idea that this is a universal flood. Now, there are four principles we should note uh, in relationship to this, what we've studied so far. First of all, God provided a way of salvation prior to judgment. He announces the judgment, but he also provides a way of salvation. This counters all the arguments from all the unbelievers that, that God is just too harsh. And this, this idea of an eternal uh, punishment in the lake of fire is just too harsh. And you'll hear people say, well, I can't believe God would be that harsh. Well, God provides a perfect way of salvation that deals with all the problems. And if you reject that solution, then there will be judgment. So God always provides a way of salvation prior to judgment. Second principle, God's salvation is determined by him alone. Man doesn't decide what the basis of salvation is. And God is exclusive in the way he deals with salvation. There's only one way of salvation. There's only one ark. There's only one door on the ark. And there's only one way of salvation, uh, eternal salvation, and that's through Jesus Christ who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father except by me. The third principle we learn here is that God is capable of delivering us in any set of circumstances. No matter how awful the catastrophe may be, no matter how incredible it is, God is more powerful. There's no set of circumstances in your life that is more powerful than the grace of God. God's grace can overcome any problem we face in life, any failure we've had in life, and God's power was great enough to de- describe and to, or to provide a perfect salvation at the cross. Where Jesus Christ dealt with the greatest problem we'll ever face, and so everything else that God provides can take care of any other problem we face in life. And then the fourth principle is that the issue in the post-Christian life, is to apply the doctrine we know in order to advance in the Christian life. Now, in the Old Testament, and we saw this from our look at Hebrews 11:7. In the Old Testament, the spiritual life operated on the basis of the faith rest drill, applying the promises and principles of the Old Testament to the spiritual life. But in the church age, there's the additional dynamic of living under the filling of the Holy Spirit, that our spiritual growth 
is based on the ability to apply doctrine while we're walking in the Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who produces spiritual growth, and as we persevere in the midst of testing, then God the Holy Spirit uses that doctrine that we are applying to develop spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. Now, as we went through our study of Genesis 8, Well, now that we can all relax and after hearing the tires squeal. Genesis 8, Genesis 8, verse 1. We have gone through at the point of the narrative in Genesis 8, 1. We have the description of the all the animals and Noah getting on the ark, the door closing, the fountains of the deep opening, the windows of heaven opening. They've been on the ark for... Uh, 190 days at this point, and then we read in verse 1, Then God remembered Noah. And last time I pointed out that this is what's called an anthropopathism. Now, the word for remember is the Hebrew word zakar. Z-A-K-A-R. And this is a word that is used specifically in covenant contexts. And this is a covenant context as introduced in Genesis 6.18, where God said that I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Now, this term zakar, in some cases, has the idea of recall bringing something to mind again. But here it is used in the sense of a figure of speech when it's applied to God. It is covenant language, or language that is used in a covenant context to emphasize the ap- God's application of the covenant provisions. Now, this is what is called an anthropopathism. We've gone over this many times, and we'll go over it many, many times. Anthropos meaning man, pathos meaning emotion, and in an anthropopathism, we attribute to God aspects of human emotion or actions which he does not actually possess in order to communicate God's plan, purposes, and policies in terms of a human frame of reference. See, if this were literal then it would imply that God could forget something. But God is omniscient. God neither learns nor forgets. God knows all the knowable for all eternity. He has known all the knowable. He He doesn't forget anything, and he doesn't learn anything. His knowledge neither increases nor diminishes. So it can't be that zakar has a literal meaning. We have to take this literal meaning of recall and X that out. It is not that God has somehow forgotten and he wakes up and goes, Oops, we forgot. There's this little boat out there floating around the world. We've got to make sure we, we solve the problem here. So it's a tribute to God and human emotion or action. Now, there's also what we call an, call an anthropomorphism. And this is attributing to God aspects of a human body which he does not actually possess. 
in order to communicate his plans, purposes, and policies in terms of a human frame of reference. And we have a classic example of an anthropomorphism in this passage, which says Noah found grace in the eyes of God. Well, does that mean that God has eyes? Other passages talk about the eyes of God go to and fro throughout the whole earth. No, the term eyes is a term that speaks of knowledge. And so God doesn't actually possess eyes, but we learn through seeing, through empirical knowledge, empiricism. God does not. But the term, the, this idiom, uh, the eyes of God emphasizes who God is looking upon, or who, who his knowledge is focused on. And so this is an anthropomorphism. And these phrases are used to describe, uh, these two different figures of speech are used to communicate his plans, purposes, and policies in terms of a human frame of reference. So when it says God remembered Noah, what this is saying is that uh, this is simply a term used to indicate uh, God's application of his previous covenant promises to mankind. And here God is acting in accordance with that earlier promise in, in uh, Genesis 6.18. You find similar uses of this phrase, remembrance, in passages such as Exodus 2.24 and Numbers 10.5 when God remembers Israel in the midst of some crisis. This is normally used to describe the Lord's response to the request of people in the midst of some sort of crisis, as when he delivers Lot from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah on account of Abraham's uh, intervention. He also remembers Rachel in the midst of her barrenness, and she gives birth to Joseph in Genesis 30:22. Moses uh, intervenes with God in Exodus 32, saying, God, remember your people. Not that God has forgotten them. He's calling Moses is 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 telling God and using the God's covenant promises, and he's calling upon God to act consistent with those covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to remember His promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Genesis 8:1 clearly is embedded within this whole idea of a of a covenant. Now last time we made it down to about to about verse 19 and there was one thing I did not point out last night last time we got in a bit of a hurry towards the end that when they left the ark in verse 19 every animal every creeping thing every bird and whatever creeps on the earth according to their families went out of the ark. Now, this is a diff- different word for family. Some of your English translations may have kind there. But the word translated kind, indicating the different categories of, of uh, animal life in Genesis chapter 1, was the Hebrew word men, M-I-N. Here we have a different Hebrew word altogether. This is the Hebrew word mishpacha. M-I-S-H-P-A-C-H-A-H. Mish 
Mishpacha. And this refers to a family, a clan, or an extended family. Now, this is going to be a key word when we get into the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10 and chapter 11, which describe the descendants of Noah's sons. And so what the, the, the shift from the uh, men in, in Genesis 1 to the Mishpacha tells us that from the ark descended all of the various families of animal life on the earth today. There may have been some something different, some different developments. Remember, there is clearly development within a kind. There may have been some different developments within a kind prior to the flood. This may explain some fossils that we have, and we don't see anything comparable on the earth today. But what Noah took on the ark was not one, not two of every species, or not two of every unclean species, and seven of every every clean. But he took two of every kind, and a biblical kind is much broader than a species, probably closer to uh, fa- somewhere between what we call a family or a genus. Now, in verse 20 and to 22, we see Noah's action after he gets off the ark. This is an act of gratitude to God as God has delivered him. And here we see Noah functioning as the family or the patriarchal priest. And this was the... Uh, operation of the priesthood up until that God calls out Israel and establishes the Aaronic priesthood, the descendants of Aaron are sometimes also called the Levitical priesthood, which is a unique priesthood to Israel. Up until that time you had a family or patriarchal priesthood where the head of the family would be in charge of uh, teaching doctrine to the family as well as providing for sacrifices and conducting the ceremonies related to sacrifices. So Noah comes off the ark. In verse 20, Noah built an altar to Yahweh. And this, of course, the use of the tetragrammaton here for for God would have resonated with the Jewish readers. When Moses is writing this, he has those Jewish readers in mind, and Noah builds an altar to Yahweh. This is the Yahweh who has delivered them from slavery in Egypt. Then Noah built an altar to Yahweh and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And so here we have the reason for the taking of seven pairs of clean animals. You have three groups of male-female, and then you had one extra. And that extra one was for a sacrifice. And these were sacrificed afterwards. And this, again, is the context that you find for the establishment of a of of a covenant. Noah built an altar to the Lord. He takes every one of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offers burnt offerings. The Hebrew word there is olah, which definitely describes a burnt offering, something that from the Hebrew Allah meaning to go up, and it emphasizes the ascent of the smoke. 
And in verse 21 we read, Then the Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. Now this is a fascinating commentary on Noah and his family. And we're the extended family. And it's just a little sardonic humor, a little dark humor going on here in this passage. First of all, we see the Lord smelled the soothing aroma. And this, again, is an anthropomorphism. God doesn't smell. But it pictures a policy of God's acceptance and of the sacrifice. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, literally, the Hebrew said, the Lord spoke to his heart. And again, that is a, what do, you, what do we call that? An anthropomorphism. God does not have a heart like we have a heart. But the word lave, which is the Hebrew word for heart, L-E-V, is is the word that has to do with it, 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 for the the physical heart although it's never used that way in the scriptures usually refers to the innermost part of man sometimes it emphasizes thought sometimes it emphasizes just it's it's almost a synonym for the soul and in that sense it means the self so it's god speaking to himself this is the the triune god speaking to himself And he's uttering this promise, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. Now, here again, we have to do some important exegesis. He says, I will never again curse the ground. There are two words in Hebrew for curse. The first is the Hebrew word kalel. Q-A-L-A-L. The second is the Hebrew word Arur. Now, arur is the strong word for curse. This is the word that you find in Genesis chapter 3 when God curses the ground as a result of sin. So the ground is already cursed because of sin, arur. But kalel is the lighter word and refers to can refer to treating something in a light manner or in an irresponsible manner. For example, when God says to Abraham in Genesis 12 that those who curse you, that's this first word, kalel, those who treat you lightly, those who have a disrespect for you, they I will curse strongly, arur. I will curse those who curse, curse you. So those who treat you lightly, I will curse in a strong manner. This is the word arur that is used of the judgment for sin. So when the Lord smells the offering, when the Lord accepts Noah's offering, he is propitiated, he is satisfied, and Noah is functioning as a priest with this offering, and of course this is a type of Christ who is the propitiation for all mankind. God's justice and righteousness are satisfied. And in this case, you have God's righteous and justice satisfied, and he says, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. This refers to a special kind of judgment, not the overall judgment of Genesis 3. And then he says, I will... Uh, 
never again, uh, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. The intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now, the word actually isn't intent. Some of your translations might even have the imagination. That's not quite true either. There is a Hebrew word that we studied back on the creation chapter, Yatsar. Y-A-T-Z-A-R. This is one of four words used in the New Testament, I mean, four words used in the Old Testament for creation. You have bara and asa and yatser is a word used of the act of a potter forming something from pre-existing elements. It emphasizes the shaping, the structuring of something. This is a noun. This is a noun based on uh, yatser. And it means to frame something or structure something. It comes to mean a meditation or a thought, something that is generated from the lave, from the heart, or the, and here I think heart indicates the soul, the inner immaterial part of man, that something uh, formed or generated from the soul of man. This is this verse is paralleled by Jeremiah 17:9, which says that the heart is more deceitful than all things and desperately sick. Who can know it? See, this is God's commentary on all of mankind. This refers to the doctrine of the fall of man and man's total depravity, that man is a sinner. And it's interesting because earlier Noah finds grace in the eyes of God. Now put this together. Noah finds grace in the eyes of God, and Noah is what? He is a righteous man. So if Noah is a righteous man in the last chapter, and here he is considered to be uh, that his, his thought, the formation of his thought from his soul is evil from his youth, how do we put that together? The righteousness that is spoken of earlier, can't be intrinsic to Noah. It has to be extrinsic. That means it comes from an outside source. It's not righteousness generated by Noah. It is righteousness that is imputed to Noah. And that was the righteousness that's imputed to Noah at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone. That's the basis of our salvation. That's the basis of God's a blessing to us is not what we do intrinsically. It is the righteousness of God, divine righteousness, that is imputed to us at salvation, which is the basis for all, all of divine blessing, all of God's blessing uh, directed toward us. Now, just one last comment on Genesis 8.21. When it says that the Lord smelled a soothing aroma, there's sort of a parallel to this in some of the uh, pagan uh, flood stories. For example, in the Babylonian flood story called the Gilgamesh epic, the hero offers a sacrifice to God after the flood, but the gods are hungry. They're starving to death because it's been so long because of this flood. They didn't have anything to eat either. So it's almost comical that uh, that the 
flood hero brings out this food, and all of the gods gather around the, the sacrifice like a bunch of flies at a picnic in order, order to gobble up the food. And that just shows the real contrast between the way the Bible presents God and presents the episodes in contrast to the uh, mythical way in these various legends. And they came about because of of the distortions in memory after the flood. But the Bible is the inspired word of God and 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 indicates that by the way it presents the, the stories. Now we come to... The last verse in in chapter 9, God's promise is that he will never again destroy uh, every living thing on the earth as he had done it. He says, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. He will do it in a different way when he burns up the earth, according to 2 Peter 3, at the uh, end of the millennial kingdom. But he will never destroy every living thing as he did in the flood. And he makes a promise in verse 22, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, all day and night shall not cease. This is the first time we have a mention of cold and heat, winter and summer. It's not mentioned before this. And this is because that once that uh, water canopy in whatever form it was, once that collapsed, when the windows of heaven were opened, it radically changed the meteor- meteorological conditions on the earth. So now you have extreme temperatures. You have heat, you have cold, and there are people such as uh, Dr. Michael Oard with the Institute for Creation Research who has worked for years creating various computer models uh, based on the evidence from uh, from the, these passages in Genesis as to what the Ice Age would have been like following this kind of a collapse. And what it pictures is that over a period of several hundred years, you would have these radical temperature variations so that within maybe a decade or less, you would have ice ages that would come down uh, very far south from the North Pole or north from the South Pole, and then they would melt off and you would have a, a quick and rapid swing to a heat cycle global warming, and then you would have global freezing again in the next decade, and then the next decade you'd have global warming, and, and at the beginning there was a rapid fluctuation, and as time goes by, it slows down so that you still have these cycles where the environment warms up and then it cools down, and it gets slower and slower, just like throwing a, a pebble into a into a pond. You see that the concentric circles, when it, close to the point of impact, they're very close together, and, and the distance between the waves is very close. And the further you get away from the point of impact, the greater the distance between the waves and the less, uh, less radical the waves are. And they begin to smooth out. And that's the picture that, that is presented in these various studies. And it's fascinating. You can get on the ICR.org uh, website and download some of those uh, studies. And he has various maps and charts that have been uh, generated from these models that almost perfectly picture the evidence that we have of the uh, of the Ice Ages. So it's a tremendous confirmation of the biblical event. Now we come to Genesis chapter 9, and this is the location of the Next covenant, which is the Noahic covenant. And Genesis 6.18 mentions this. So let's turn back to Genesis 
This is the Hebrew word berit, B-E-R-I-T-H, and that is the word for covenant. Now, a covenant basically means for to us the idea of a legal contract, a legal contract. And the very first mention of the word berit in Scripture is in Genesis 6.18. And it's important for us to pay attention to the details of this passage. When we went through Genesis 6, I basically skipped over the detailed exegesis of this passage to come back to it at this time. In Genesis 6.18, God says, I will establish my Covenant. I will establish my covenant with you. Now, normally, let's write this up here. The verb you have with covenant in this passage is the translated, I think, fairly well to establish. This is the Hebrew Hakim, which is the hyphial stem or the causative stem of the verb kum, which means to stand or to arise. And in the hyphial or causative stem, it means to cause, to stand, or to establish. This sometimes, or the way it's taken when people read this, I will establish my covenant with you, people tend to read that as I'm going to inaugurate my covenant with you. I'm going to inaugurate the covenant. But that is not what it means. Now, it looks that way in the English. I will establish my covenant. sounds like God says, I'm going to inaugurate a covenant with you, Noah. But that's not what it means. If you do a word study on this word in covenant context in the Old Testament, the word actually means to confirm a pre-existing Covenant. Now think about that. What does it mean to confirm a pre-existing covenant? What covenant already existed? Well, we've studied this before in terms of, uh, of, of dispensations. God establishes a covenant which we call the Edenic Covenant. In Genesis 1, 26 to 28, it doesn't use the word uh, Edenic there, but in Hosea 6-7, we have the statement, like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. Now, even though the word covenant isn't used in Genesis 1, Hosea 6-7 makes it clear that when Adam sinned, he transgressed a covenant. So there was some sort of covenant established, and that's the kind of language that we have. Now, we, what do we have in Genesis, uh, let's just, Hold your place there. Let's turn back to Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let him rule over the beasts. Let him have dominion, or let him rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then he blessed them and said, Be fruitful 
and multiply. Now, I'm writing this up on the overhead because I want you to pay attention to the themes here. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Subdue it. Have dominion or rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So these are the key words and elements that we find in Genesis 1, uh, 26 to 27. Now the reason I'm going into this is because there's a lot of people who say there's no covenant until you get to Genesis 6. What I'm, going to sh- what I'm showing you is that on the basis of Hosea uh, 6, 7, that that should be understood that Adam transgressed the covenant. The reason you have a problem there is because some translations translate Adam and Hosea 6, 7 is mankind. Like mankind, they've transgressed the covenant and there would be just a general transgression. But let's go back to now to look at Genesis 9. Let's look at the, the, the covenant in Genesis 9. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them. Now, this is the start of the Noahic covenant. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Where did we hear that language before? We heard it back here in Genesis 1, 27. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So we'll check off, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You find that in both passages. What I'm saying is that if you have the same language in a covenant in Genesis 6, that you have in a statement of Genesis 1, even though Genesis 1 doesn't say, hey, folks, I'm a covenant, it's a covenant, if you have the same terminology. If you were to go out in the street and you were to find a piece of paper and the top of it was cut off and it was a real estate contract, would you know it was a real estate contract? Sure, you would know it was a real estate contract because of the verbiage. You wouldn't have to see contract in big, bold letters at the top of the page to know it was a contract. Then we read in verse 2, And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that moves on the earth, and all the fish of the sea that are given into your hand. What's the difference? See, man was to subdue or to rule, to have dominion over the animals in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. But now what you have is a status of fear between the animals and man. You didn't have this element of fear in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. What happened? What happened between Genesis 1 and Genesis 9? You had the fall. And because of the fall, there, there was a curse placed on man and upon creation and upon the animals. Now in verse 3, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. That's a reference back to Genesis 1.29, that God had given everything, uh, all the herbs in the, for, in, in the um, garden for the sustenance of uh, Adam and his wife. Then in verse 4 of Genesis 9, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood, but this now, for the first time, they're able to eat flesh. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning from the hand of every beast. I will require it from the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother. I will require the life of man. And then note in verse 6, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Why? Why do you have... This is the basis for capital punishment, which we'll get to uh, later. But I just want to point out one thing here. 
What is the basis for capital punishment? Is the argument here because it will prevent people? There is a, it's going to discourage people from committing murder. Is that the reason? No. What's the reason? The reason is because in the image of God, God made man. This is an murder is an act of blasphemy against God because you are destroying an image bearer. But all I want you to note right now is that in Genesis 9, you have reference to image terminology just like you did in Genesis 1, 26 to 28. So look at this. Genesis 1, 26 to 27 uses key covenant terminology, image, likeness, rule, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue the earth. All of those key terms are repeated in Genesis 9 in the Noahic Covenant. So when God says in Genesis 6.18 that I will establish my covenant with you, what he is saying is that he is going to reestablish or he is going to confirm a pre-existing contract with Noah one that has already existed. And what is that? It is the Edenic Covenant, which was modified because of the fall in Genesis 3. And at that point, we call it the Adamic Covenant because there's a curse placed on man and on creation. And then it's further defined and revised in Genesis 9, and there is the Noahic Covenant. And the Noahic Covenant has a number of characteristics, and we don't have time to make it through all of them tonight, so I'm going to go ahead and close at this point, and next time we'll come back and look at the details of the Noahic Covenant in Genesis chapter 9 with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening. We thank you for this picture of your grace, your deliverance, that our salvation is always dependent upon you. You are the one who sets the conditions for salvation, that uh, our eternal salvation is based on faith alone and Christ alone. Father, we thank you for the uh, encouragement and the example of Noah, who applied your word consistently to the problems of his day, and by it he was qualified for his inheritance. May that challenge us in our own spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.